0: And welcome to The Art of Work, a new podcast looking at how we find fulfillment as we pay the bills, and also perhaps some meaning, fun, and even joy. I'm Christina Patterson. I'm a writer, broadcaster, and coach. I've always been fascinated by the role work plays in our life, and I've done lots of different things in mine. I've worked in bookselling, I've worked in publishing, I've worked in arts admin and run an organisation. I made a midlife transition to journalism and was a writer and columnist at The Independent for 10 years. When I was made redundant from The Independent, after a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth, I decided to start a portfolio life. Now I'm a critic for The Sunday Times, I'm a commentator on Sky News, I'm an author and have a second book coming out next year. And I've trained as a coach because I've learnt through a series of bereavements that life is short. Work can eat up an awful lot of it, so we might as well enjoy it. I am determined to make the most of mine, and I want to help other people do the same. As a journalist, I've interviewed Nobel laureates, scientists, poets, artists, film stars and politicians. I've interviewed coffee farmers in Ethiopia, charity workers in refugee camps, business leaders in swanky offices, nuns and sex workers in Sicily. Last year, during the first UK lockdown, I decided to talk to people about how their work was changing in the light of the pandemic. I talked to a doctor, an opera singer, a couple of comedians, an award-winning rapper, a couple of entrepreneurs, a couple of academics, a novelist, a ballet dancer and the Scots Poet Laureate. I called the podcast Work Interrupted. There are 24 episodes and you can listen to them on most podcast directories. I'm hoping our work won't be interrupted by the pandemic forever, so I've decided to look to the future. The podcast will now be called The Art of Work because all work is an art and it isn't easy to build a work life that gives joy and pays the bills. I've been really inspired by the interviews I've done so far. I've been touched by the honesty of my guests, impressed by their achievements and awed by their spirit, fight and sense of fun. So in this preview episode, I'm pulling together some highlights to give you a taste of what's to come. My first guest on Work Interrupted was tech entrepreneur and best-selling writer Margaret Heffernan. She's an extraordinarily energetic person, but also bracingly realistic.
1: I think it's probably fair to say I have a somewhat tragic view of life, which is I think that the vast proportion of things that we say and do will turn out to be pointless, but that doesn't matter. The point is still to try and that life is about trying and there are no guarantees except that if you try nothing, nothing will change. And so I have a pretty kind of resilient, um, energetic view of this, which is, okay, so there are no guarantees, that's life. She had some excellent advice about how
0: to perk up your work if you're not enjoying it.
1: That The way you think about work changes how you experience it. So I remember years ago I was asked to make a film for uh, BBC2 about how the rabbit came to be introduced into England. And I won't bore you with how I got this ridiculous assignment, but let me just say that you know it was not a subject close to my heart, not <laughs> then and not now. Um, but you know, it was in a series of programs that I worked on and, um, and so I pretty much had to do it, but then I said to myself, okay, so I don't really care how the rabbit came to be introduced (laughs) into England, um, which was in sort of the 13th century, but I'm a filmmaker. So I need to create something in this project for me. That's a challenge. And so what I decided was I'd never made a funny film before. And obviously this is not a riotously hilarious subject, but I thought, well, you can do the history as meticulously as ever, um, but do it in a way that's witty. So I decided that every single shot in this film would have rabbits in it, live rabbits, (laughs) at which point I also learned a lot about professional animal wranglers. Um, But the point of the story is, um, I did make the film, and every single shot, bar the stills, had live rabbits in it. Um, The point was, even within this, to me, rather banal assignment, I found something for me. Where can we put our rabbits?
0: That sounds like the title of a best-selling business book, but I'm not sure I'm the person to write it. Philosopher and author Julian Bugini is great at cutting through the corporate bullshit. I told him how much I hated the phrase, bring your whole self to work, and he agreed.
2: Like you, I, I really hate that phrase. And I was doing some uh, some work recently for, for an organisation which was looking at its its values. And that's one of the things they said in their company statement. And I said, are you sure you want to ask this of people? I mean, there are lots of people who would very much like to leave parts of their selves at home. And it's very important for them. And, and do you really think that those people are not going to be best workers I mean they might be some of the best workers actually the people who literally bring everything in might be a pain in the neck because you know they're burdening everyone with their domestic problems and so forth and but it but it's it's kind of as you say it's just a, a myth around this authenticity it's a very powerful idea people have that there is something which is the authentic self which is at the core of your being which is you know never changes and in a way it's weird because. We've come to embrace the idea of fluidity in so many ways, particularly around sexuality, and yet they still seem to want to hold on to this idea of the the ever-present core which never changes. I find that interesting.
0: He's also pretty scathing about that business cliché usually put forward by Silicon Valley millionaires of follow your passion.
2: I think sometimes people are given the impression that if only you follow your passion with all your heart and all your soul all earthly rewards will sort of come to you. And, and, and of course they won't. Uh, some of the most admirable people I know are people who are creative people who have managed to go their whole lives sort of pursuing their art, whatever is, their music, their, their art, their literature, their poetry, without ever being able to make a living from it. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that's great. They haven't given up on what's most important to their lives. It's not the same as their career. So, yeah, I, I would say just ditch all that. if you're lucky if you do have a singular passion and it's also a singular passion that in that can be allied to something which can earn you a living then fantastic and you're very lucky and do do that don't go away and do something else but if you don't um you shouldn't feel there's anything wrong with you and it shouldn't stop you pursuing valued action in, in in the jargon
0: Tamara Rojo was having a particularly challenging time As Artistic Director of the English National Ballet, she'd spent seven years reconfiguring the organisation and had just moved it to a new state-of-the-art venue when the pandemic struck. Everything was cancelled, of course, and she knew that many of the freelancers who support productions would have no income at all. She was extremely honest about her emotional struggles. One of the things that was keeping her sane, she said, was giving daily online ballet classes from her kitchen. The other thing surprised me.
3: I started baking for the first time in my life. And that has been the one thing that has given me solace. I have loved it. I have loved the process. It's the one time where I felt quietness inside my mind, was just making cakes. And it was my birthday not long ago. And I made myself a five-tier cake with seven flavors and icing. I've never in my life attempted to do anything like it. Um, and, you know, we're only two of us, so somebody has to eat it, um, after, which is not exactly the, the recommended diet for a valid answer. But the process of making it was such a pleasure. I honestly loved every minute of it.
0: I've got no interest in baking, though I did get brainwashed into making banana bread during the first lockdown, which I didn't even eat. But for a ballet dancer to make a five tier seven flavour cake is really quite something. Tamara also offered lessons from her world that could help any of us who are going through a tough time at work.
3: I think um, think that that is the one beautiful thing about the live performing arts is that You have good shows and you have dreadful shows, and you have shows where you spend three hours on the stage crying inside and wanted to run back home and hide under your blanket. Um, But it is just that moment. And very often, horrible shows that you feel really were not what you wanted to offer have been perceived very positively by people In you know they have felt something different than what you were feeling and other shows that you felt really proud of did not actually uh, translate into into that feeling for the audience so it was it is a learning curve but it is also i guess the one thing that you learn is that there's always another goal there's always another chance
0: it was great fun talking to peter york he's not just an incredibly astute and witty cultural commentator but also a management consultant finely attuned to the zeitgeist. He's pithy on business jargon and thinks words like vibrancy, authenticity and creativity are difficult to translate into anything in normal English. He's particularly wary of the word creative.
4: Uh, What I don't like about it is it's borrowing from it's, um, if you say that what you do is creative, um, uh, then it's, Defined as a sectoral a assumption. If you do that sort of job, it's creative. And if you do that sort of job, it isn't. Uh, Work yes, in yeah. a certain kind of job, in a certain kind of media, you're creative. Yeah. And, if it, and the most extreme form of this would be: I can remember, I couldn't, you know, I could never let it go as a joke. Um, uh, um if you were sitting. Um, with advertising people, uh, and you would say, uh, "And what is it that you do?" and and that person would say, "I'm a creative."
5: Mm.
4: And you'd think, you know, uh, oh dear, does your mother know? Um, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know uh, it just made you it made you laugh in a completely absurd way. You went, know, "How can any grown person talk about themselves like that?"
0: Well, well I, I, it's I, the I don't
4: idea like that. that Creative people are touched by magic.
0: Yes. Yes. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> and,
4: um, you know, and, and other people aren't touched by magic, and creative people are better than the rest of us because mm. they are touched by magic.
0: I met Suzanne Moore, veteran of what used to be known as Fleet Street, shortly after I lost my job at the Independent. I practically wept on her shoulder, and she was very kind. She is still one of the most prominent feminist voices in journalism. Now at the Telegraph, rather than the Guardian. Embracingly realistic about what the realities of journalism are like today. This was her advice for people wanting to go into it.
6: I guess, realistically, the first thing I would say is the thing that we always used to say to people who wanted to act. Well, yeah, you know, great. You can be a great actor, maybe, but get another skill, a transferable skill, for times yeah. when you're not actually Hamlet, you know? Um I think yeah. that is what, I mean, I'd certainly say it doesn't matter whether what it is what that skill is whether it's plumbing or teaching or what anything uh, I, I would i would yeah. almost say that to anyone now about
0: anything when i interviewed poet and novelist jackie kay she was still scots Macca, the poet laureate of scotland she was crazily busy running a program of public events from her front room while also trying to look after her recently widowed mother she believes that poetry is an essential part of life and now every baby born in scotland gets a poem she has written in their baby box when the
7: First Minister of Scotland announced that she was going to be giving out a baby box to every baby born in Scotland full of essential things. I wrote to the Scottish Government, as you do, and said, how about including a poem in the box of essential things? And to my surprise, they wrote back and said yes. And then that meant I was under quite a lot of pressure to write that poem, Welcome, We One." I wrote the poem. I went to the Parliament. I hand wrote it. I picked the paper, um, the the, the colour of the paper. And so everybody... Every baby born in Scotland gets a copy of this poem in my handwriting called Welcome, We One." Audre Lord said, you know, famously, poetry is not a luxury. And I uh, firmly and wholly believe, utterly believe that we need poetry in order to survive.
0: We talked about the struggle between life and art, which so many writers and artists grapple with. Do you bring a ruthless focus to the work or do you try to be a decent human? And can you do both? She said she was
7: meant to be writing a novel and feeling like a failure all the time. It's important and your relationship, being a good daughter is important to mm. me, being a good mother is, being a good friend is. Um, so, and But the novelists that I know that actually are produce novels, they manage to shut all that out and they literally yeah. go into hibernation while they write. So, you know, whatever has happened to you in that time, they won't, they won't be they wouldn't be responding. And I can't really be that person. Um, I'm not sure I want to be that person either. Nikki Kanani is
0: also someone who juggles big family obligations with the challenges of a huge role. She's Medical Director of Primary Care for NHS England, as well as a GP, and told me that on family Zoom meetings during lockdown, there were often 30 or 40 families joining in. One of her duties during this time was to take part in some of the Downing Street briefings alongside Patrick Vallance, Chris Whitty and our ever-optimistic Prime Minister. Nikki told me that her father came over from Uganda with literally nothing after Idi Amin expelled all Asians and spent some time in a refugee camp in Kent. Her mother came over from Kenya. They met at Sunderland Polytechnic while studying pharmacy. Many children of immigrants feel quite strong parental pressure to go into a proper profession. But not Nikki.
8: Interestingly, I'd been quite interested in kind of um, acting and dancing, and, and 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 my parents had sort of gone, "Oh, how do we
7: support you to do that?" And when I then changed my mind and said I wanted to do medicine, they were worried about me doing medicine. So they were very atypical for an, for an Indian family. <laughs> then,
8: yeah, they were like, oh, no, <laughs> darling, don't be. We yeah, yeah, yeah. want yeah. you
7: to be a showgirl. <laughs> <you know?
6: laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's a bizarre, bizarre situation. <laughs> Um, And my sister was sort of almost similar, you know, and wanted to be an astronaut.
0: So they were like, yes, that's a great idea. Aisha Hazarika, Times radio presenter, political commentator and comedian, certainly felt some pressure from her parents to have a proper
9: job. My mum was like, do something safe, be a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. And I was like, I want to do something different. I want to do something with writing or the media or comedy. Or my mum was like, no, 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 no. And my mum kept saying to me, look, You don't understand that people like us, it it doesn't work. We can't do those kinds of things.
0: It's just not the way it's going to be. Aisha did get a proper job. She worked as a civil servant and then as a political advisor to Ed Miliband and Harriet Harman, doing a lot of work on the Human Rights Act, among other things. But she also developed a parallel life as a stand-up comedian.
9: And it gives you an incredible sense of achievement and um joy, you know, it's just really yes. lovely when you are in a room with people and there's a joke that you really love and you've crafted it and you've worked really hard at it. And I love the run-up to a really good joke and you're like, Oh my god, I hope they're gonna like it, and then you do it and then they love it and you love it and everyone's laughing. Yeah. It's just such a joyful feeling.
0: But I always feel when I talk to Aisha and when I watch her perform or even hear her presenting a radio show is a feeling of pure joy. Don't we all want more joy in our life? And thank God for comedy. Where would we be without it? Viv Groskop already had a successful career as a freelance journalist when she also decided in her 30s to go off and become a stand-up comic. She wrote a book about it called I Laughed, I Cried. She's written a number of other best-selling books, including Own the Room, which is also the name of her hugely successful podcast. In our conversation, we talked about what success means the dangers of defining yourself too much by your work, attitudes to money, and how we make choices about the work we're prepared to do. There's this uh, expression, um, forgive forgive the crudeness of it, Christina, but, you know, what flavour of shit sandwich do you want to eat? Because <laughs> all work has a shit sandwich yeah. that comes with it. Yeah. And sometimes it might be very low salary. But if... That you absolutely love the job and it's your life's work and you can either live on a fairly low amount of money or you have um, a partner who can support you with a better earning job then okay then that flavor's okay for you um, for other people it may be that you earn a lot of money but you're really really beholden to other people and you have to do what they say
6: yes exactly. well that's
0: a flavor that I cannot stomach yeah, me too. So <laughs> I think knowing those things about yourself is really, really important. One of the qualities I've appreciated most in the people I've interviewed is honesty. It has sometimes taken me by surprise. Guy Speer, for example, investor and best selling author of The Education of a Value Investor, gave me this answer when I asked him why he wrote his book.
5: I wish. Christina I could tell you that I came out of a noble place. I had uh, envy for friends of mine who had written books or people that I knew who'd written books and I felt like uh, I didn't want to get to age 40 without having had a family and there was some part of me that said that I needed to have produced something that would live beyond me so it was it was I think like so many things it was actually, Uh, I didn't come from the best possible place. It was sort of egotistical, if you like. That was really what motivated me.
0: He was just as honest about what motivated him in his early career choices. I'd said that most of us watching Wall Street thought we were watching a monster, but he seemed to have watched it and thought, what a great guy. Guy was clear that he emerged from Oxford as a Gordon Gecko wannabe. He went to work for a company called D.H. Blair, but it soon emerged that there were all kinds of shady things going on.
5: I think that, We've, we value the virtue of persistence and um, seeing something through to the end. But there are some times when you want to do the exact opposite, actually. You just want to leave as quickly as possible. And one of the biggest sort of personal sins that I committed at DH Blair was this, this egotistical and um, vain desire to make good on my title of vice president and to have done a deal, whereas... What I should have done is just left within three weeks, and so when I finally did a deal, I mean, it was, there's a, a a phrase that Warren Buffett uses a lot: you can't do a good deal with a bad person, mm. and you can't you can't get a good outcome in a bad place. And so I thought, well, if I can just get this, then I can de- declare victory and leave. But of course, getting to the deal uh, was just the beginning of a whole new can of worms, and I guess I was in a repeat of a Groundhog Day type situation in which, you know, don't get into a fight with a pig because you both get dirty, but the pig likes Mm. it, you know? (laughs) So uh, there was no positive way out of that.
0: The pig likes it. That's not a phrase I'll forget for a while. Dame Sarah Connolly is one of the world's leading mezzo-sopranos, but she was also surprisingly honest about how she
10: feels about listening to her own voice. Oh, no, it's a vanity thing. I can't bear it. I can't. I, I, I listen to when I'm recording something. I have to listen to myself sing, because from from a purely critical point of view, you know, was that note in tune? Uh, was I correct rhythmically? Did I get the message across? And anybody who's worked with me knows what I look like in the sound booth. You know, I'm screwing my face up. I'm, I'm, you know, going swearing every other word, going, oh please, no, no. <laughs> um so and it's not just this sort of was my friend Matthew Rose calls the English disease which is self-deprecation to the Mm. point where it's got ridiculous it's it's not that I just I just feel that um for pleasure sake I don't particularly um that wouldn't be my first choice
0: Dame Sarah has been described as having balls of steel, and in the course of our conversation, it started to become clear where those balls of steel had come from.
10: I think it's a sense of being told as a child. I had a really rubbish set of two schools I went to that I couldn't. You can't do this. You're not good enough. Um, You're not clever enough. You're, you know, and and much worse. I'm not going to start crying about that now, um, metaphorically speaking. But I was told throughout my life that I was, you know, a failure by not only my, possibly my, yeah, yes, my my parents. But also, I found that difficult to say, but also my um, teachers, quite a lot of them, you know, just said, well, you're not going to make anything of yourself, um, don't see anything in you, except for perhaps my early piano teachers who are lovely people. Um, And the examiners who always gave me very high marks. So there was some disparity going on. (laughs) Um, And but I knew when I was about 10 that they could all go to hell. I remember looking in the mirror saying, you're on your own now. Never mind them. You're on your own. Uh, This is just you. You're double figures now. Never mind anybody else. It's just you. One of the things that struck me in so
0: many of the interviews is how people we perceive to be successful are often envious of people they perceive to be more successful and dogged by a sense of their own inadequacy. Best-selling writer and novelist Daisy Buchanan was touchingly honest about this.
6: I mean, I've never been much of a one for thinking, oh, you're in Barbados and I'm not and it's not fair, because I think, well, I could... like to go to Barbados at some point i've never been um but definitely definitely work stuff and career stuff and that feeling of there's a sort of mad scientist in my brain who amalgamates everyone into one sort of giant achiever and it's like oh oh everyone else in the world is getting four book deals a week what have you done lately
0: most writers and journalists don't get paid very much and particularly when they start out Daisy was also very honest about what it's like to struggle financially and watch friends moving on and buying flats when you feel left behind.
6: Oh, for me, when I was at my brokest, and I think it's getting worse, it was just the, the biting, biting anxiety and the inability to plan and dream. And I I mean, I'm 35, 36 in a couple of weeks, um, oh. but you know for people in their 20s now I mean I'm the position I'm in now which is and this is how no matter how well I'm doing and how you know wealthy I become you know if I have yachts in Monaco and all the rest of it I will never feel as rich as I do knowing I can always at well, for For some years now, I've always been able to go to a cash point and get some money out of it and not Mm. fear that my card will be swallowed. I can know I can pay for something and know that if there's a problem with the card, it's a problem with the card. It's not a problem with me or the bank. And I can wear disposable contact lenses. And I never have to. And I know that's not very environmentally friendly. Sorry. But I can. um, But knowing I don't wear disposable contact lenses every day, but I could if I wanted to. That makes me feel like a millionaire.
0: She was about to publish a brilliant, filthy and now best-selling book, Insatiable. And she spoke so wisely about the courage and effort it takes to just do the damn work.
6: And maybe that's what I'm learning about ambition. That it's not, it's more to it than just saying, I want to do this. That you have Mm. to do the thing and most of doing the thing will be feeling like you're in the dark, stumbling and stumbling and going, this absolutely isn't working. What if this doesn't work?
0: There are no guarantees with this kind of work. You do the work, it might or might not pay off. And this is why what Daisy says is so wise.
6: But I think that if you are going to go all out, you have really, really got to love the, the doing of it. Even mm. when you don't necessarily... Always love it. you just have to love it some of the time. Adam Hamdi
0: is a best-selling thriller writer. His most recent book, Private Moscow, co-written with James Patterson, was a Sunday Times bestseller, like so many of the people I interviewed. He felt that his own drive was partly fueled by his parents' experience as immigrants.
4: My dad came to this country and had nothing and started off working as a waiter and then was a taxi driver and a chauffeur and you kind of build yourself up from nothing and so I was used to seeing that as a child. Nothing was handed to me and I knew that I had to sort of fight and struggle for whatever, um, uh, you know, I got. And so I think there is something that's ingrained if if you're an immigrant. You don't feel entitled to anything. You don't expect anything.
0: Adam gave up a lucrative career as a management consultant to become a screenwriter and then a writer of thrillers. But he said that he and his wife were so skint at one point that they were literally burning their own furniture to keep warm. You get the ups and then you get the downs. Harriet Minter also knows what it's like to grow up without much money. I met her at a course she was running a few years ago and was hugely impressed by her entrepreneurial spirit. She used to run the Guardian's leadership programme and is now a successful writer, business advisor and coach. But when the first lockdown hit, Her finances were hit
8: too. I mean, I am always naively optimistic about things. (laughs) I'm just like, oh, I'm sure it will be fine. And I think it's because when I was growing up, my parents basically never had any money. So they never had any money. And my mum just had this mantra, which was when we really need it, it will come from somewhere. And she was actually really pretty good at magicking up money, (laughs) when it had to happen and she really instilled that in me and my sister and I I definitely have this as a belief and I I, we talk about this actually on the Freelancer Away Day where I say that actually I really believe that somewhere someone has money and it's just about working out how to get them to give it to you and um and so that I mean though I'm not gonna lie like there, there was a point where my bank account was empty you know my bank account was empty there was nothing booked and I was sitting there thinking, oh, my God, I, I don't actually know what I'm going to do now.
0: Harriet is practical and wise on the whole
8: ghastly issue of personal brand. Personal brand is not optional because whether you want to have a personal brand or not, you have one. And quite often it's not created by you. It's created by the people you work with or the people that you socialize with or the people who have worked with somebody who you've worked with. And really what we mean by personal brand is, is what people are saying about you when you're not in the room. And I think as much as possible, we want to have a level of control over that. So we want to be able to say, actually, I know who I am. I know the impact that I want to put across and I know what I want other people to think about me.
0: She was also the only person I spoke to who compared work with sex.
8: So this This is where sex comes into work, right? Because actually... So much of our lives we are told not to own our desire, to not say what we really want, to not say actually that doesn't work for me or I need more of this or actually what I really want is this and so we keep quiet about it and the more we keep quiet about our desire, the more we then tend to find actually that envy and that jealousy perks up when we see somebody else getting
0: One of the people I loved interviewing most was MOBO award-winning rapper Governor B. Like Aisha, like Jackie, like Nikki, like Adam, he's the child of immigrants. He has had more success than he ever dreamt of, but he had such a beautiful definition of success.
11: I had to learn the hard way that success isn't a house, a car, money, job, opportunities that kind of stuff now I understand I'm saying this from a privileged position it's much easier to say that when you have acquired some of that stuff and experienced it and that kind of stuff but now I know that success is doing the best you can with what you have and seeing what happens you know it's not this destination of when I get there I'll be successful because I thought that about music and now I'm on my however many albums and I've got to where I wanted to get to. And there's always something more that you want to achieve because mm. everything you're exposed to opens your eyes even wider and you're like, now I want this. But I think, listen, it's more about who you're becoming as a person and what your character is like than what you're actually doing because that might change all the time. You might stick at one thing, but what you're doing is going to change all the time. And if you're adapting, you'll be okay. But it's more about are you being you know, the kind of person that you'll be proud of when you're 60 70 80 and looking back on your life um but yeah that's what i'd say
0: most of the people i interviewed during the first 18 months of the pandemic were intensely aware that they were not key workers doing the essential stuff we needed to get through but one person i interviewed absolutely was and is that's rachel clark a palliative care consultant and writer of several beautiful best-selling books I found our conversation both moving and inspiring. I, I sometimes think
9: to myself that if you're a palliative care doctor, you can encapsulate your your day-to-day work in, in, in these words. Um, I think to myself, my life is death. My My day-to-day life at work is death. And that has an extraordinary effect on you because it... It tells you every single day of just precisely how precious each lifetime is, where, whether it's a short or a long lifetime. It is all we have, and it's it's ephemeral. Every single thing that we love in this world, every single person that we love in this world, we are going to be separated from one way or another, um, be it their death or our death. We are going to lose everything, and. The idea that all we can do is savour and cherish every single one of those beautiful, exquisite, profoundly fleeting experiences is astonishing. It's the the kind of joy and curse of being human, isn't Mm -hmm. it? We know that from the outset, that we can't avoid it, we're mortal, and it doesn't matter how skillfully you try and distract yourself from that fact or, or deny it. It will get you in the end, one way or another.
0: It took me back to where I started. Margaret Heffernan's husband was killed in front of her when she was 30. This is what she said.
1: Well, I think we have to ask ourselves a hard question. And I think, you know, I've been asking myself this question since I was 30, which is when my first husband was killed, Mm. which is, okay. it's pretty much always now or never time. So how are you going to use it so that it really counts? And, you know, I mean, that sounds like a bit of a burden to bear, but actually, I think it makes life more exciting and more galvanizing. I don't want to piss around. I don't want to just waste my time here. I don't know how much I'm going to have. So I want to make it worth it. That, for me, is the heart of it. That's why
0: I'm doing this podcast. Tell me, as the poet Mary Oliver wrote in her poem The Summer Day, what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. I've always wanted to find out more about what enables people to do brilliant work that makes life better. In this series, we'll hear from comedian Robin Ince, FT board member and former anthropologist Gillian Tett, entrepreneur Chris Barris-Brown, best-selling writer, classicist and TV star Mary Beard, mathematician Christina Pagel, world expert on the history of work Jan Lucason, senior political producer of ITV Anne Alexander, theatre critic and author Arifa Akbar, teacher turned social worker Gavirne Bennett and former lawyer and now boardroom superstar Margaret Casely Hayford. Do please join me on this journey and let's find out more about The Art of Work. You can subscribe to The Art of Work on Apple, Google, Spotify and most major podcast directories. If you like it, please do share, rate it and or leave a review. For tips, wisdom, and advice about the art of work, do follow at the Art of Work on Twitter and at theartofwork.co on Instagram, which is also the name of the website. The Art of Work podcast will be released every Friday. I hope
6: you'll join me next week.